But let's move on from some bad news to some bad news. It's 2020, people. This is all we got. This is all we got. This is all we got. But it is what it is. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it's not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. And happy to be stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Also in Red Bluff and Redding, California on KFOI, Round Mountains, KKRN, and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. Hope you're all safe up there. Out in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, down in New Orleans on WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. In Janesville, Wisconsin. We'll talk about you, Wisconsin, on WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the internets. On the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Radio for Humans, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, no Lies Radio, Deprogrammed Radio, Verdant Square Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com, just trying to keep up with things today. And it is not easy. So we're going to jump right in with this breaking news this afternoon. Florida felons must pay all fines and fees and restitutions and other legal fees before they can regain their right to vote in the state. That from a federal appellate court on Friday in a case that has huge implications for the November elections in the battleground state. Reversing a lower court judge's decision that gave Florida felons the right to former felons the right to vote, regardless of outstanding court-imposed fines and fees. The order from the 11th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals upheld the position of Republican Governor Ron DeSantis and the GOP-led state legislature, leaving voting rights activists aghast. Under Amendment 4, which Florida voters passed overwhelmingly with a lopsided bipartisan 65 to 35 landslide back in 2018, felons who have completed their sentences would have their voting rights restored. But the legal dispute arose after lawmakers the very next year at the order of Governor DeSantis, who won his election on the same 2018 ballot by less than half a percentage point, He moved uh, and the legislature moved to define what it means to complete a sentence. 
In addition to prison time served, lawmakers directed that all legal financial obligations, including unpaid fines and fees, would have to be settled before a felon could be eligible to vote resulting in what voting rights advocates and a lower federal court judge found to be an unconstitutional poll tax. If you could afford to pay the fees, you're allowed to vote in Florida. If you can't, no vote for you. The appeals court today said that's just fine. They agreed with the Republican lawmakers who passed the law that was specifically designed to disenfranchise as many as one and a half million otherwise newly eligible voters in Florida, including a full one quarter of the male African-American population. Which is, by the way, the real reason for this new law. Voting rights advocates today call the ruling an affirmation of a pay-to-vote system in Florida that primarily disenfranchises minorities and poor people. Julie Ebenstein, a great voting rights attorney we've had on this show several times. Um, She's a senior staff attorney with the ACLU's Voting Rights Projects. She says this ruling runs counter to the foundational principles that Americans do not have to pay to vote. The gravity of this decision, she said, cannot be overstated. It is an affront to the spirit of democracy. This uh, ruling was uh, a 200-page ruling. It was a 6-4 to vote, the full 11th Circuit Uh, Therefore, says the Constitution's due process clause was not violated by the passage of this law that was implemented, in this case, restricting the otherwise wildly popular Amendment 4. Four judges issued a dissenting opinion in the case, arguing in part that it is sometimes extremely difficult for returning felons to even know what outstanding financial obligations they may still have because the state keeps no statewide database of such outstanding fees. Uh, and uh, the dissenting uh, the dissenters said that the state should create a, a mechanism to provide that information, because, in fact, you have folks who don't even have any fines and fees, but who are afraid to register to vote because they don't know for sure. And they're afraid they'll be thrown back in jail if they have any such fines and fees. The dissenters wrote, uh, in light of the chaos created by the majority's holding that financial obligations must be satisfied, countless scores of individuals will be uncertain of their eligibility to vote. The state does not track how many felons have registered to vote since Amendment 4 passed, but its backers estimate that the monetary requirement and coronavirus pandemic have limited the number to about 100,000, which is far less than those potentially eligible. The great legal reporter Mark Joseph Stern of Slate unleashed a tirade a Twitter thread tirade in response to the Friday ruling. I don't have time to quote all of it, but the first two tweets, he writes, Judge Bill Pryor's decision upholding Florida's poll tax on ex-felons is one of the most dishonest, misleading, and despicable voting rights opinions I have ever read. It is shockingly bad. It is an affront of the very notion that Americans have a right to vote. He says this decision was inevitable after Trump flipped the 11th Circuit by appointing five judges, all of whom joined today's appalling opinion, which truly makes me sick to my stomach. He wrote, this is an incredibly dark day for voting rights, he added.
It is, but it is also a reminder about how absolutely necessary it is to restore this country on November 3rd. No matter how difficult the courts are working now to make it uh, this year to vote, and I've got a lot more on that ahead today, including with our guest coming up on recent rulings uh, in voting rights cases filed in Texas, North Carolina and Pennsylvania. But I should also note here that a state court in North Carolina just last week found that state's 150-year-old nearly identical fines and fees laws for former felons a law that was adopted after post-Civil War construction as a law to, quote, secure white supremacy, as its supporter in the state legislature actually described at the time, a law meant to prevent, quote, the honest vote of a white man from being offset by the vote of some Negro, unquote. That law in North Carolina just last week was struck down by a state court freeing about 100,000 former felons to vote in the Tar Heel state. But in Florida, an almost identical law passed just last year is now being allowed to stand, at least as of now. Which is incredible. Also, uh, yes, Desi Doyen. Oh, I was just going to say, just yeah, a reminder, s- elections have consequences. Yeah, you think? The 11th Circuit Court was flipped after the 2016 election because Trump was elected and Republicans in the Senate are focused on flooding the judiciary with radical right-wing judges who are standing in the way of civil rights and voting rights and will get worse if he is reelected. Hey, also uh, on the uh, note of standing in the right in the way of civil rights and voting rights... An incredible ruling from the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin on Thursday. The right-wing Wisconsin State Supreme Court told election officials on Thursday that absentee ballots should not be mailed for now so that the justices can take their time and determine whether these uh, the, whether the ballots should include the Green Party's presidential ticket or not. The 4-3 order from the court along partisan lines, left open the possibility of reprinting 2.3 million ballots and delaying the printing of others, moves that election officials said would cause them to miss deadlines by state law. State law uh, says that uh, vote-by-mail ballots must go out by September 17, so they got just about a week if they're going to be ordered to reprint everything. And even if the state court changes that deadline, federal law, which they can't change, says that uh, military and overseas ballots must go out by September 19. The uh, state election officials uh, are beside themselves. One uh, one told the uh, Wisconsin Election Commission, if we do not send our file to the printer tomorrow, we will likely not be able to meet the statutory deadline. Another said we are too far into the process for this to occur. A company that prints ballots for multiple municipalities said, quote, it would never be able to meet the legal deadline if it had to reprint ballots. Another clerk pleaded, my budget cannot afford to reprint these ballots. Milwaukee's clerk explained that his county uses 475 different ballot styles with different color stripes on each ballot making for an extremely time-consuming con- uh, time process to have to redo all of them. 
He said if Milwaukee County is forced to stop printing and begin designing, testing, and printing a new ballot, we will not be able to meet the state and federal deadlines. Megan Wolf, the executive director of the commission of the state election commission, attested uh, in the case, quote, it would be catastrophic to this election if ballots were to change after being sent to some or all electors. Well, in fact, ballots have now been sent to some three hundred and seventy eight thousand voters in the state. And nonetheless, the court ordered them to stop while the court decided whether or not to include the Green Party uh, presidential ticket on the ballot. The court fell along ideological lines with the so-called conservatives in the majority and the liberals in dissent. Uh, Adding candidates to the ballots after some have been sent would be very complicated, the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel notes. Voters who have already been sent a ballot would need to get a second one, and then clerks would have to make sure that no one voted twice. Yes, chaos, chaos. And that's exactly what the Wisconsin State Supreme Court wants. They did the same thing back in April during the state's uh, uh, primary election when they refused to add uh, to to allow votes to be counted, even if they were uh, dated by Election Day, but they showed up later. That led thousands, tens of thousands of voters to have to go wait in line in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a cold and rainy day for hours on end to try to cast their vote and to get sick in the process. But the Wisconsin State Supreme Court does not give a damn. County officials expressed frustration with the court handling the case the way they are so near the deadline for sending ballots to voters. Monroe County told the commission, we feel this is almost impossible at this point. The order was unsigned, but issued by the court's conservatives. So the problem here is that uh, the Green Party, for some reason, their candidates here, uh, their, their vice presidential candidate, Uh, used two different addresses. Actually, uh, she is from Milwaukee, but for some reason, on some of the petitions to get them onto the ballot, she is listed, her address is listed as a motel in South Carolina. Unclear why that is. So uh, those petitions had to be thrown out, and therefore the Green Party did not have enough to qualify for the ballot. Now, the Wisconsin State Election Commission, they voted three to three, They were deadlocked. Three Republicans, three Democrats. Republicans wanted the Green Party on. Democrats said that that was in violation of state law, and it does appear to be. But it's important to note here that the Wisconsin Election Commission was designed by Republicans to deadlock, to deadlock exactly like this when they scrapped the previous nonpartisan state election commission and replaced it with a three to three partisan commission. That's what Republicans wanted. In this case, it means there was not enough votes to approve the Green Party to be on the ballot. And then that Green Party, by the way, waited two weeks until they filed their lawsuit. The result at the moment in Wisconsin is absolute chaos. And that may very well be what the very partisan right wing Supreme Court there is after in a state which Donald Trump is said to have won by less than one percentage point in 2016. 
That year, by the way, the Green Party candidate, Jill Stein, received more votes than Trump's margin of victory. So, yes, we will continue to follow that case very closely and the chaos in the crucial state of Wisconsin. But we're also following or doing our best to follow voting rights lawsuits in just about every state in the nation right now. So let's take a quick break and we will move on to Texas and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, where we've got some good news and not nearly as good news with a lawyer involved in the cases in all three states joining us shortly. That's all straight ahead on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. The stars at night are big and bright. Ready? Deep in the heart of Texas. See, you're good you at that. I know, I'm not from one Texas. One more time, one more chance. All right, here we go. Deep in the heart of there you go. Yes. You're welcome, Desi Doyen. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. You know, as we have long said, this democracy is not going to save itself. And while the act of voting couldn't be more important, that alone is not going to save us. Vigilance and public oversight and, yes, even lawyers fighting the good fight. uh, One of them will be joining us momentarily. Uh, may help to collectively preserve the democracy that so many have fought and died for for so many years. But it is not going to be easy. And it is uh, as difficult now, I think, as it has ever been in this country. To that end, we turn our public oversight to the great state of Texas, which needs a lot of it these days. And not only because it's a state that Democrats dream about one day flipping from red to blue, And where the real clear politics polling average currently places Donald Trump just over three points above Joe Biden. That's not much in what used to be deep red Texas. Uh, It's not just that, but because the state needs a lot of public oversight with one of the lowest voter turnout records in the country and one of the few remaining across the nation to severely restrict vote by mail even amid the worst global pandemic in 100 years. The attempt to suppress the vote can be found virtually everywhere one looks in the Lone Star State, sadly, including at local post offices in the Democratic stronghold of Houston. Houston's Democratic mayor, Sylvester Turner, this week asked the city's postmaster to explain why officials at more than a dozen of the city's 86 post offices have declined to accept multilingual voter registration materials from volunteers with the Nonpartisan League of Women Voters. In a sharply worded letter to Postmaster Corey Richards, Mayor Turner also requested a copy of an apparent memo that said the materials violate U.S. Postal Service policy. Really? That, according to some postal workers. U.S. uh, Congress members Sylvia Garcia and Al Green, both Houston Democrats, first raised the issue last week after touring the North Houston 
USPS Processing and Distribution Center in the wake of Postmaster General Louis DeJoy's attempt to slow down the delivery of mail in advance of this year's critical presidential election, where more vote-by-mail ballots will be used than ever before. Even in Texas, where largely only voters over the age of 65 are even allowed to ask for a vote-by-mail ballot. If you're 64 and you have chronic asthma, sorry, buddy, mask up and get to the polls. And sorry in advance if you have to wait three hours there to vote. And by the way, sorry if the governor has allowed people to vote without wearing a mask. Too bad. The League of Women Voters voter registration materials uh, to be put in the post offices there also included reminders about key voting deadlines, according to their volunteers who successfully placed the material at most of the Houston post offices. Postal workers, postal workers at about a dozen offices, however, said they could not display the voter registration cards and other materials there. As the mayor of the fourth fourth largest city in the U.S., I want to know why, Mayor Turner wrote in his letter, toward the end of which he quoted former civil rights and voting rights icon Congressman John Lewis, who died in July. He said Lewis is famous for saying, if you see something that's not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to do something about it. I encourage you, he said, to do something about it and do it now. Congresswoman Garcia said she was told the Postal Service's legal counsel advised the ban on displaying voter registration cards at the post office. Voter registration drives are permitted in postal facilities under certain circumstances, but workers are prohibited from accepting or displaying, quote, unattended stacks or boxes or forms, according to a USPS spokesperson, Uh, to the uh, Houston Chronicle, adding that agency officials are aware of Turner's letter and appreciate the concerns expressed. She reiterated, however, the USPS rules prohibit depositing literature on Postal Service premises. During their tour of the Postal Service Center last week, Congress members Garcia and Green also raised concerns over 12 sorting machines that had been shut down, including a universal sorter that handles thousands of packages per hour. The Houston Democrats said local postal officials promised at least one of the shuttered machines would be replaced by mid-October. Well, that is nice of them, isn't it? In some slightly more encouraging news out of Texas regarding absentee voting, the Texas Tribune reports this week, as Texas prepares for an unexpected deluge of mail-in votes in November, a federal judge has found that one facet of the state's signature verification rules for those ballots is unconstitutional and must be reworked for the upcoming elections. That's good news. U.S. District Judge Orlando Garcia ruled this week that the state's process for determining whether there is a mismatch between a voter's signature on their ballot envelope and the signature that the voter used on their application to vote by mail, quote, plainly violates certain voters' constitutional rights. In his order, Judge Garcia ordered the Texas Secretary of State to inform local officials within 10 days that it is unconstitutional to reject a ballot based on a, quote, perceived signature mismatch without first notifying the voter about the mismatch and giving them, quote, a meaningful opportunity to correct the issue. Thank you, Judge Garcia. 
Additionally, to protect voters' rights in the upcoming election, Garcia said the Texas Secretary of State must either advise local election officials that mail-in ballots may not be rejected using the existing signature comparison process or notify uh, them that they are required to set up a rejection notification system that would allow voters to challenge such a rejection. Once again, thank you, Your Honor. The ruling comes more than a year after two voters filed suit when their uh, mail-in ballots were rejected by local officials, neither of whom, none of whom, these local officials, by the way, are handwriting experts. The uh, officials decided the signatures on the envelopes in which their ballots were returned were not theirs, even though they were. The voters, joined by groups that represent Texans with disabilities, veterans and young voters, argued that the state law allows local election officials to reject mail-in ballots based solely on mismatching signatures and that that violates the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In his order, Judge Garcia agreed and said the state is creating a severe burden for voters whose ballots are rejected because they are not offered a meaningful opportunity to cure their ballots. As a result, those voters face complete disenfranchisement, Garcia said, and thus their right to vote is at stake. So that is uh, decidedly good news at least unless or until Texas appeals, as they always seem to, and the Republicans' U.S. Uh, stolen U.S. Supreme Court decides to stay that ruling based on the so-called Purcell principle, which they unevenly apply as it suits them, it seems, claiming that it's too late to change an election rule, even if not changing it, as in this case, could result in thousands of disenfranchised voters. In the lawsuit, the plaintiffs claim that at least 1,800 mail-in ballots were rejected solely on the basis of perceived mismatched signatures during the 2018 midterm general election, a number that is expected to be much higher during a presidential election in the middle of a pandemic. And speaking of the pandemic, that, of course, is going to affect every voter across the entire state of Texas. But some folks are trying to keep it safe for voters at the polls. No easy feat, unfortunately, in the state of Texas. And as the lawsuit uh, describes, it will be worse for some voters than it will for others. Take a quick break here and we'll be joined by Courtney Hostetler with Free Speech for People for an update on their lawsuit trying to keep voters safe in the state of Texas and an update on uh, a, a case we spoke with her about uh, some months ago in North Carolina trying to prevent the use of unverifiable touchscreen voting systems in the swingiest of swing states of North Carolina. All of that and more is next with Courtney Hostetler. I'm Brad Friedman, and this is your Bradcast. <laughs> The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Thanks. 
the eyes of Texas are upon you all the live long day. Our eyes are on the state of Texas at this point. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Late last month, Mia Familia Vota, the Texas NAACP and individual Texas voters, filed a motion for preliminary injunction in federal court in Texas seeking court intervention to address unsafe and unequal voting conditions in Texas during the COVID-19 pandemic. The motion comes in a case that was filed in July, challenging a broad range of Texas's voting practice practices as unsafe and unequal during the pandemic. The motion alleges that the state's insufficient number of polling places, its limited and inaccessible early voting locations, its reliance on repeat touch voting machines and its voter ID requirements will result in unsafe voting conditions and increased risk of coronavirus transmission, which in turn will result in voter suppression. The health risks and adverse impact of these policies will place an undue burden on the right to vote and be borne disproportionately by voters of color in violation of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment guarantees, of due process and equal protection under the law and the U.S. Constitution's First Amendment, according to freespeechforpeople.org. Here to discuss that case and a number of other related cases in a number of key battleground states today is once again Courtney Hostetler. She is senior counselor at the nonpartisan freespeechforpeople.org, a group which has been joining a number of important legal efforts and sometimes maddeningly frustrating ones, as we have learned in several of them this week, I hate to say, in their fight for free, fair, safe, and overseeable elections this year. Welcome back to the broadcast, Courtney Hostetler. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, okay, last time we talked with you back in spring, I believe, uh, it regarded a case you had filed with the NAACP in the battleground state of North Carolina to prevent the use of there of what your suit described as new, insecure, unreliable, unverifiable, and unsafe touch uh, touchscreen voting machines. I want to get an update on that case in a moment, and perhaps a case in Pennsylvania if we have time, as the courts have not been very helpful on some of these. But uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier, you said there was at least some good news, and not in one of your cases, but in one that we reported a few days ago concerning the attempt in it was it Harris County, Houston, to Harris County, yep. yeah, to prevent the uh, the uh, county clerk there from sending out absentee ballot application, not ballots, but applications to all voters. That was being challenged, I think, by uh, Republicans in the state. It was actually by the Texas Attorney General. So, yes, Republicans, yeah. but it, it's by go. the state. Yeah, but we got some good news, at least on that case. Uh, you have uh, you tell me. Yes, just checking the news myself today, I saw that the state district court judge ruled that Harris County can, in fact, move forward with its plan to send every registered voter an application. Again, this is just the application, Mm -hmm. so that if that voter is eligible to vote by mail, they don't have to go through that second step of of trying to find an application Mm -hmm. or seek an application through a slow mail process. It will be delivered to them automatically so that they can apply for it um, per the per the terms of the state. So it was 
there was an attempt by the Gen- Attorney General to block that, mm-hmm. and today the district state district court judge has refused to grant that. So that's a it's a little bit of good news coming out of the state. Well, we got to take what we can get, uh, Courtney. <laughs> okay. And I'll tell you, I mean, the idea that we are sort of begging for scraps here—we're not even talking about ballots for everyone. We're just talking about applications for everyone. Even that, the Texas Attorney General was trying to prevent, even though there is no law against it, uh, as we reported uh, earlier. It's it's just incredible. So let's uh, move now to your case uh, in Texas for the moment. Tell me about the uh, the unsafe and unequal practices that you and the NAACP and the others I mentioned are concerned about, and then we can discuss the, uh, the court's uh, disposition on this case this week. Sure. I mean, as you've probably seen, Texas in fighting the mail-in ballot ex- expansion lawsuits mm-hmm. uh, has said repeatedly, well, we're going to make in-person voting safe. We're making in-person voting safe. You know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't expand mail-in voting. Mm-hmm. And as our plaintiffs have seen and as they have you know real reason to fear and as they saw in the runoff elections in July that's simply not the case in person voting in Texas is, was unsafe during the runoff elections in July and they are looking to be even more unsafe during the much larger I mean much 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 larger mm-hmm. elections in November um, what we're seeing as you mentioned before uh, the governor did finally implement a statewide mask mandate but specifically exempted polling places. Mm. So that's not just voters, that's also poll workers. And one of the things that we saw from that is is it, it isn't just that voters will show up and wait in line without masks, which puts everyone around them at risk, but it also puts poll workers at risk. Yeah. And there were several polling places that suffered shortages of poll workers because, and I read an interview with a poll worker who said, you know, I went there, I sat down, I had my mask on, but Mm -hmm. they wanted me to sit for the next 12 hours next to people who weren't wearing a mask. I, I can't take that risk. And she left. And we saw polling pla- we saw polling places be closed. They were mm-hmm. closed in Texas again during the uh, much smaller runoff elections, and, and that's not new information, right? We've seen that unfortunately happen over and over again in elections throughout the country, where there's no effort to protect poll workers or recruit uh, poll workers who aren't in high risk categories. Poll workers very reasonable, very reasonably want to protect their health. Mm-hmm. They don't work. And then if the state or the local officials hasn't taken uh, sufficient efforts to keep those polling places open with sufficient staff, they close and people are just out of luck. And they find out at the very last minute, right, Um, the morning of. And each of these points seems like uh, you are ultimately suppressing more and more voters, voters who are afraid to go to the polls because they know that people aren't uh, using masks there, poll workers who are afraid to work at those polls, which results in closing polling places because there's not enough people to 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 keep them open. I mean, each and every one of these steps seems to hurt voters, to suppress voters in one way or another. Absolutely. And this is far from the only policy that is making the in-person voting unsafe it's so unsafe that it is unconstitutional. It places an unconstitutional burden on the right of voters to vote um, because they are essentially having to choose between their lives and voting. And that, that's not a constitutional burden to place on voters. And it's also one that's not being shared equally for a number of reasons. Some counties are able or willing to be safer than other counties. Mm-hmm. 
some people are at higher risk than other people. And as unfortunately we've, we've understood because of the socioeconomic burdens that have been placed on marginalized communities in this country that run along racial and ethnic lines, we have seen that black and Latino communities are at much higher risk, not only for getting COVID-19, but also from being hospitalized, um, from fatalities. They're, they're facing the, the steepest economic burden of the pandemic and of losing their job. They're less likely to have a support network. They don't have as much. They're less likely to have sick leave. Mm-hmm. And so they're facing these enormous burdens. And on top of that, in Texas, black and Latino communities are also less likely to have access to neighborhood polling places. In the last eight years, more than 750 polling places have been closed in Texas, Mm. mostly as part of their countywide polling place program, counties that participate. The benefit is people can vote anywhere within the county. That's great. But the trade-off is that now counties are allowed to close precinct level precinct level voting locations and so you've seen enormous closures and not unsurprisingly those closures have by and large affected black and latino communities and And, black and latino neighborhoods and i note that that case in texas also cites what should be a right to not touch a germy touchscreen voting machine (laughs) that that could be a disease vector uh but apparently you know that's also not a right available to texas voters who again i must note do not have a right to vote vote by absentee for everyone, as most states do, unless the voter is is over 65 years of age or is actively sick with a doctor's order or is out of town. I mean, at this point, uh, you know, I might recommend that uh, Texans make plans to leave town on Election Day just so that they can ask for an absentee ballot and hopefully they'll drop it off at a drop box or a county headquarters if that's allowed in Texas. But, uh, you know, the, the, the hoops they have to jump through to just try to stay safe in the state is remarkable. Well, for all of the reasons you mentioned, uh, Courtney, it sounds like uh, this uh, suit makes perfect sense. I'm sure the judge agrees with it and will, uh, like in those other cases, uh, make orders to make sure that uh, voting is safe constitutional and equal and fair for everyone in the state of Texas, right? Unfortunately, no. We were very disappointed to receive a a ruling from the district court judge uh, just at the beginning of this week, granting the defendant's motion to dismiss on grounds we we very strongly disagree with. Essentially, the judge says this is a political question, and this is the states get to decide this, the local officials can decide elections. That's not my purview. We strongly disagree, because while the manner of elections is typically within the purview of state officials, Mm The courts absolutely and unquestionably have the authority and are are expected and required to rule on issues involving the constitutionality Mm -hmm. of elections and election laws. And what we're saying here is it's not that we're saying, well, you have one policy, but we kind of prefer another. We are saying the elections that you are putting on the policies that are using to put these elections on are mm-hmm. unconstitutional. You have placed an unconstitutional burden on the right of people to vote. You have made it more difficult for some people over other people to vote, which also violates equal protection. Mm-hmm. And it violates the Voting Rights Act. We have, we have alleged uh, that it violates a federal law, the Voting Rights Act, because of the unconstitutional 
both it's unconstitutional and it, it violates the Voting Rights Act. So this is not a question of policy. This is a question of have, have, they, have they met the floor that mm-hmm. is the constitutional requirement placed upon um, election officials, the governor, uh, the, the secretary of state by the Constitution. And it's very clear that it doesn't. Um, you know, this is a, in, in this pandemic, a respiratory pandemic, people are going to end up waiting in line. They are going to not, they're going to be standing next to people who are not required to wear masks. They are going to be standing in lines that create crowds. The what you mentioned earlier, the fact that they don't have access to paper ballots and mm-hmm. that many voters, uh, not all, again, we're going into this equal protection issue, many voters will be required to vote on machine. And not only is this a machine that's touched by hundreds of people throughout the day, it's also a machine that will slow down the voting process. Yep. If you have paper ballots available, paper, paper can't break. Right? Even, even, if the, even if the counting machine breaks, you can right. put it in a lockbox right. and count it later, and people can keep voting. Yep. You can also get more people voting at once. With paper, it is much easier. You can open more polling places flexibly. You can get more stations opened up at a socially distance because you're not trying to figure out where the plugs are. Mm-hmm. You don't have to plug anything in. Right. So you can set up in a socially distanced manner um, and get many people voting at once paper doesn't break, that machine breaks down, that machine needs to be disinfected, as it should be after yep. every single use. Um, there are some machines that need to be turned off before they can be disinfected. Right. I, and I, I would say that actually the manufacturers have not guaranteed that the disinfection process that is needed in order to avoid breaking the machine, mm-hmm. manufacturers have not guaranteed that that process is also capable of, of killing pathogens, of, right. of killing the virus. Yeah. So there's this issue. Um, so it's both touching the machine, which is puts you in contact with the virus, but it's also the backlog, the bat, the this logjam that will happen when you don't um, allow, when you don't have the opportunity and the flexibility to use paper ballots. I'm I'm struck by uh, this was in a federal court, correct? This particular, yes. case? I, you know, I'm struck by this particular judge who says this is a political issue. I don't even understand what he is talking about. I'm not even sure. You know, your case does not present this in any political way. It, it would apply equally to uh, to everyone of all parties. And it actually seems to go. I, I you heard my uh, mentioning that other case of, uh, concerning the rejection of uh, absentee uh, uh, ballots for uh, signature mismatches. It seems to me kind of as straightforward as that, uh, a finding that would affect everyone equally. So I'm kind of confused how they're even how this judge is even coming up with the idea that it's political. Did you just draw a bad judge here? <laughs> well, it's I, I should try to clarify, it's called the political question doctrine. It's not really about sort of Democrat or Republican. It's basically the idea of, is this something that courts get to decide, or is this something that, uh, you know, another Mm -hmm. body of government gets to decide? And so because of that, you know, we we, we strongly disagree. And, And I will say the judge actually came out and said that the judge finds the relief we're asking for to be reasonable thinks it's reasonable, mm-hmm. thinks it's, it's thinks it could make things safer and healthier for Texans, but that he doesn't have the authority to rule on it. And again, mm-hmm. we strongly disagree with that. Yeah. And I would mention that even in a, a Fifth Circuit opinion that came out recently, uh, Texas Democratic Party v. Abbott, and mm-hmm. the the outcome is not one that we agree with because it's it's one eventually the Fifth Circuit uh, just you know. Uh, 
opted not to allow for the expansion of, of mail-in voting. But a piece, you know, they were asked to, to rule on this issue, mm-hmm. this jurisdictional question of whether or not they have authority to, to even rule on the issue. And they mm-hmm. found they do have authority because the question is about the constitutionality of what the state is doing. It's the constitutionality of the, defend, the defendant's actions here. Mm-hmm. And that's, it's the same issue here, yeah. right? We're looking at the constitutionality of what the defendants are doing in implementing these rules um, uh, during the pandemic, Do right? We're, we're not weighing in on whether or not it's constitutional to, uh, you know, create these kind of elections outside of a pandemic. Right. But in a pandemic, mm-hmm. a yep. respiratory pandemic, that we know how it transfers, we know the dangers, we know there are super spreading events, we know, we know all these issues, we, inf- we have the CDC weighing in on what it takes to hold a safe election during the pandemic. And we have a situation in which the, the governor is saying, we agree that masks need to be worn in public, but we're not going to require it at polling places. It, we're a, not going to provide masks at polling places. We are going to yeah. encourage, but not require, social distancing at polling places. We are not going to allow counties to use mobile early voting, which would bring mo- er- early voting mm-hmm. to more people and make it more accessible. We're, we're going to have some expanded early voting, but by Four, four or five days, right? Pretty limited. And right. the hours are still really limited and the locations are really limited. So for people who don't have access to these early early voting locations, um, a single extra week doesn't help them that much. There's still going to be millions of people showing up to on election day yeah. or more problematic, what we're really concerned with, and this is the real the real crux of the constitutional issues at stake here, is that people won't show up to vote because they can't risk getting COVID-19 and dying. They can't risk getting COVID-19 and not being able to work for three weeks. Let's say they have a a minor case of it. It's a Mm 25-year-old. But if they get it, they're out of work, and that's that's the money that their family relies it's, on in order to pay the rent. I mean, is, these are the, the this is what's at stake, and it's it is it's the, the burden is is not shared equally no, and, amongst Texans. Everyone has a burden. Every person is at risk, and it, nobody should be at risk to vote. But there it, are. I think it's worth recognizing that there are people in Texas who are absolutely carrying this burden unfairly it's just uh, incredible to me it's incredible that uh it it blows my mind that he would just the judge would just say no sorry we just can't deal with this it's not within our purview i i don't understand that have have you guys decided and i want to get uh very quickly i got a couple of other states i want to ask you about uh have you all decided at this point whether you're going to appeal is there even time for that we are going to appeal. We are going to appeal, and Good. we'll be asking the Fifth Circuit to expedite consideration of our appeal. And, of course, it's the Fifth Circuit, so I'm not uh, counting for much. Very right-wing uh, Fifth Circuit, but... Good. I hope at least someone will get another crack at at looking at this because it seems to me to be insane. Similarly, in Pennsylvania, uh, I read at freespeechforpeople.org that a a similar case, I think it's uh, similar. You can correct me, Courtney, in uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, also filed by you guys. And in that case, the Pennsylvania NAACP, that that, too, was denied by a state judge, I believe, uh, in a state which also, by the way, uses germy touchscreens at the majority of polling places, although they make it a little bit easier for uh, folks to cast absentee ballots finally there this year. 
do I understand that that also was uh, dismissed and that uh, you all are deciding uh, whether or not to appeal it or not? Slightly different in that the hearing that was held on Wednesday, um, well, earlier this week, is a, a two-day hearing, mm-hmm. uh, was both to hear the motion for preliminary injunction and the motion to dismiss. The judge has not indicated what they're planning to do with regard to the motion to dismiss, so the case is still live. Um, but the judge did indicate that he was going to deny our motion for preliminary injunction. And, and really, that's the crux of the case in, in right now. At least we hope it is, because, uh, you know, everyone is hoping that this pandemic will only affect this election, right? We're all hoping mm-hmm. that a vaccine comes. It is not guaranteed. Right. Uh, you know, I think the thing that we're, we're also aware of when we bring these cases is that we could potentially be looking at pandemic conditions for local elections next year, for the midterm in two years. So we are deeply, deeply disappointed um, that the motion for preliminary injunction has been denied in that case, and we are considering and exploring mm-hmm. all options, including the possibility of an immediate appeal to the state Supreme Court. Um, but we are also very uh, hopeful that the judge recognizes at least the need to keep this case live um, so that it can be, a, you know, A, so that we get the chance to bring our motion for preliminary injunction on appeal um, and to make sure that we can fully litigate this case until there is an end to this pandemic. Keep up that good fight. And as long as we are uh, in a cascade of not very good news with you to, uh, this week, uh, Courtney, <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, not your fault. Uh, let's move to North Carolina. Finally, as we discussed when you guys uh, filed the case back in April, you were on the show here to talk talk about it uh, to uh, in that case. And again, which I describe as really the swingiest of swing states, North Carolina, a suit to prevent the use of insecure, unreliable, unverifiable and unsafe touchscreen voting machines in the state. You've got good news for me there in North Carolina, right? I do not. Damn it. I knew it. <laughs> Disappointing you left, right and center. I today. knew it. That's all right. It's 2020. I'm used to it by now. <laughs> it's 2020. So what, what what happened in North Carolina? So, <laughs> again, that's a, uh, an issue re- uh, related to our motion for preliminary injunction. So the case is still live, and we are, we okay. are, ex- we are ready and, and preparing to litigate this fully and to, and to pursue this case through t- trial, because it does have long-term uh, implications for the state of North Carolina, mm-hmm. because these machines are utterly unreliable and unverifiable. They rely on a barcode. So you make your choices on a screen, a, a germy screen, a yep. screen as you have recognized, and you get a piece of paper. And that piece of paper summarizes your choices, doesn't give you all the information. It's not like looking at a ballot. You kind of get a summary of, of your choices, and then there's a barcode on top. And that barcode is what gets read by the machines. That's yep. what gets tabulated. Yep. The little summary of information, that only gets looked at if there's an audit. And again, it's a summary. So people aren't getting a chance to really look at their choices the way that people who have a full ballot in front of and them And even if they do look at them, there is no way for any of us after the election to know that any of them have looked at them because studies find that some 93% of voters don't notice when those little summaries uh, have been changed by the computers. Precisely. 
it is it is madness so yes thank you for continuing to try to stay on that case as well uh, you know we have been uh, trying to run through a whole bunch of election lawsuits now playing out across the country courtney and frankly it's it's impossible to keep up with them all at this point is it my imagination or are we seeing an absolute record number of such cases coming before uh, the courts this year I think we are seeing an enormous number of cases, and this is coming specifically out of the fact that we're seeing outrages every day. Uh, we're seeing uh, the post. I mean, would you have guessed a few months ago that the Postal Service right. would be participating in efforts oh. to limit people's access to registration materials? Right. You know, the we're seeing local officials, we're seeing the Trump administration, we're seeing state officials who are not only, you know, they're, they're fighting actively against free and fair elections mm-hmm. at, at every possible level, right? They're requiring, you know, where we saw in Florida, right, a, a basically, essentially a poll tax. You have a poll tax against people who uh, went to prison, served their time, mm-hmm. are off, you know, have the legal ability to vote again. Oh, except for that pesky fact that if you're too poor to pay, pay certain fines and no one's really sure what those fines and fees are and mm-hmm. who might have, you can't vote. Right. Right. I mean, we're seeing things like that. We're seeing happening, by the way, happening, by the way, in the same week that uh, a 150 year old North Carolina law that is almost the same as the one that Florida, uh, uh, you know, just passed two years ago. This one was actually passed 150 years ago after the uh, Civil War reconstruction in order specifically, as the judge found to keep the, quote, Negro from being able to vote, that was struck down. But in Florida, oh, it's just fine. Everything's okay. Right, right, right. Um, you know, and that's exactly it. But this is why it's so important to fight, right? We're seeing mm-hmm. in Texas people, this the mask mandate, we're seeing uh, Texas saying, oh, we'll make in-person voting safe, but it's not. And yep. in-person voting is looking devastatingly unsafe. Um, so we're seeing issues pop up all around the country. Um, but we're also seeing, you know, we'll, we'll take the, the wins are coming only because people are fighting. If we were all saying, well, we'll probably lose, then we wouldn't get any wins. We wouldn't get anywhere. Yep. Um, and we also wouldn't get movements coalescing around this. We're seeing voters recognize um, more and more uh, how important it is to vote and, and, and where they're getting pushback, right? That maybe there are people who are saying, well, it's probably just my bad luck. You know, oh, I was, I was taken off the polls, or maybe I didn't do this. And, and now people are realizing that it, it's, it's not a one-person issue, that this is happening to whole swaths of people, that it's yeah. not just one person feeling, oh, I don't feel safe voting today. They can now recognize, no, there's an effort to stop people like me from voting. And, and what would you say there to are some, people who are fighting for me. What, what, would you, yeah, what would you say to people who are hearing this, who are hearing our conversation, who become discouraged Encouraged uh, from all of this and know that, well, you know, while the courts have been uh, pretty good throughout the uh, Trump era in various places, they have sort of a mixed record when it comes to, to voting, you know, because there's this notion, I think, that, you know, someone else is going to come in and save us. It's going to be the courts. It's going to be an attorney. Well, you know, in as we see in these cases, the courts and the attorneys, that stuff doesn't always work out. What would you say to uh, to a voter who's listening to this? Uh, what can what can they do at this point to protect their vote and protect democracy for all of us, Courtney? Well, I think the the first thing, obviously, is, is to vote, right? You find a safe way to vote and do it. If it if it means a drop box, do it. If it means if you if you have the capacity to do it, seven o'clock in the morning, wearing a mask, do it. You know, do everything you can. 
and vote knowing that you're voting for you. And, and you might also sort of be voting for people who don't have that, people who are 65 and asthmatic and simply cannot safely vote, right? You exercising your vo- vo- vote might be the closest we can come to supporting them because everything we do to exercise our vo- vo- vote now mm-hmm. will make it easier and better for us to get policies in place to protect those other people who might not safely be able to get to the polls this year. And then to, to, to know that there are people across the country who are fighting to change these policies, who are, you know, every time there's an effort to, to push back against free and fair elections, there's other people who are, who are saying, no, I saw that, and I'm going to fight you on it, right? The League of Women Voters didn't just roll over and say, well, I guess you're not taking my materials, I'll go home. Mm-hmm. They created a fuss. They recognized that, that this is such a critical way for people to get registration materials, particularly now in a pandemic when things like libraries are closed, right? Yeah. I mean, this is a key place, and, and they're pushing back, and it's getting recognition. And so know that there's people fighting. And I think the other thing is if somebody faces a burden to their right to vote, if, they're, if they've been knocked off the polls, you know, if, if they go to vote and they're saying they're not registered or anything like that, if, if polling locations are closed in their neighborhood, if anything like that comes up, it's worth, you know, don't just think, oh, it's my bad luck. You know, find there are advocates who want to know about these things, who might already be know about these things and are looking for individuals who are willing to say, you know what, I do want to be an individual plaintiff on this lawsuit, or I do want to listen in on your next Zoom meeting and find out what I can do or how I can participate. So nobody's alone in this, and there's a lot of people fighting, and we can always find more. As, um, more. as Mayor Turner uh, in Houston uh, said, you know, quoting John Lewis, if you see something that is not right, not fair, not just, you have a moral obligation to do something about it. If you see something, say something. <laughs> yeah. And uh, contact, by the way, the folks at freespeechforpeople.org because they <laughs> would like to help. I believe what you guys are doing, by the way, and you got a great crew there with you and, and, and the great John Bonifaz and the great Susan Greenhall. And, and others there. I believe that you guys are doing the most important work in the nation right now, so I hope you will keep at it no matter how many times the courts push back and no matter how ugly uh, things could get between now and Election Day and even more disturbingly, perhaps after Election Day. I know John Bonifaz well enough to know that he will stay on this case if it, uh, as long as it needs to happen uh, even after Election Day. Courtney, I got to get and out. Yeah, go ahead. Real quick. I was going to say, and Ron Fine, who's my yes. my boss and our legal director, is is you know pushing hard on you know two active cases in Pennsylvania and is thoughtful and engaged and really looking uh, for ways to make sure yep. that we're we're protecting our free and fair elections. He is great as well. Has also been a guest on the broadcast. Uh, couldn't be more honored to have uh, you guys here, Courtney Hostetler, senior counsel at Free Speech for People. You can find them and yes, please support them at Free Speech for people.org and on the Twitters at FSFP as in free speech for people. Courtney, really appreciate it. Good luck. Keep up the work, uh, the good work and the good fight. And we'll uh, hopefully talk to you soon with maybe some better news. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was great speaking with you. Thanks. Okay, we have got to go. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it for free anytime at bradblog.com. Thanks to those of you who help us stay on your public airwaves by stopping by bradblog.com donate. We can use your help there right now more than ever. 
bradblog.com slash donate. Drop me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. On the Facebooks and the Twitters, you'll find me at the Brad Blog. I'll see you there. Until I see you here next time, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. Good luck, world.